This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sally Rippon, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So Sally, my God, what a body of work. Uh, She is Australia's highest selling female author and one of the country's best loved writers for children. Now, I did not know that you're, I mean, I've always been aware of you and aware of your career, but I didn't know um, the the amounts in terms of numbers. I mean, really big numbers on sales. Well, we're also looking at a lot of books, Cheryl. (laughs) It's not like Leanne Moriarty who'll sell a few million per book. You know, I have been doing this a very long time and there are a lot of my books out there. Yeah, children love it and you're selling heaps. So I'm very happy with that. Sally was born in Darwin and grew up in Southeast Asia and as a young adult studied traditional Chinese painting for three years in Shanghai. Um, which inspired her first novel. Now, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Shall that. I say it for you? Yes. Chansey. Chansey, <laughs> I can say. Chansey and the Foreigner. Writing for almost 20 years, and you really don't look that old, Sally has published over 50 books for children and young adults and has received numerous awards. Sally loves to write stories with heart and characters that resonate with children and parents alike and is perhaps best known for her Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack series and is here today to talk about her latest book, The Search for the Silver Witch, the thrilling finale to the much-loved Polly and Buster trilogy. There you go. That is a stellar career. Well, you know, I was thinking about it and my very first book was published in 1996 and I would have written it in 1995. So I think it's actually coming up to 25 years. That you've been writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me where it all started. I've always written. And I would say if you ask a lot of children's authors this, they would say the same. I made books as a child, you know, folded up bits of paper and drawings. And because we moved a lot, it was a way that was easy for my mum to keep us entertained in hotel rooms. And why did you move a lot? Because of my dad's that. job. Yeah, my dad's a civil engineer, or was. He's retired yeah. now. And so we grew up, grew up in Southeast Asia and moved about every two years because that's where the work would take him. So by the time I was in year eight, I'd been to eight different schools. And so I was very used to... I think maybe just I'm just thinking of this now, so many of my books are about friendship because that was one of the things that I had to pick up and let go of so often and so... And that's uh, difficult, I think. It is, and I think it creates a kind of an outsider observer in somebody who moves yeah. around a lot as well um, because often I was living in countries where English wasn't the first language, so I'd have to learn what people were saying by reading body language and facial expressions. And so I think now... The way that I study people is very much looking at not what they're saying, but how they're saying it and what's in their faces from having that experience as a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you find it hard to make friends moving around that frequently? I think I developed the skills pretty quickly to be able to yeah. make friends. I think not all children do. No, my younger sister found it harder. I think. Yeah. Um, the youngest and myself, we were quite outgoing. We were quite um, 
uh, we find it quite comfortable to talk with complete strangers, whereas my middle sister found that much harder. And so I think it depends on the personality type. It depends on the family. We were a very tight unit as well. Um, and obviously, you know, my mother was very supportive and very yeah. um, helpful in getting us through those changes. But I don't know how to um, compare it to any other lifestyle because I haven't had, but I've since heard a theory um, about expatriate kids that they can often later uh, come up with some kind of trauma and, and the idea of having to move so often. I don't know if that's been something I've experienced, but it, there is a terminology for it which has now left my head. I think it's called third culture kids, where oh, your parents wow. are from one culture but you grow up in another culture. So you never really had this sense of putting your roots down or what is home. And yeah. So home becomes your family. Yeah, and yeah. then if that falls apart, as my family did as well, yeah. you know, you have to find that um, ground within yourself, I guess. Yeah, interesting. This is becoming very therapeutic. Yeah. It's a bit. It's a heavy subject, isn't it? But it's um, because the Sydney Writers Festival, um, which was on last week and which you know we both attended. I mean, there was a big theme of belonging. Mm, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yes. Well, I think a lot of creators, um, a lot of what they yearning for is this idea of what is it to belong, and and a lot of artists that I talk to have always felt slightly outside, not quite part of what it is to be. Maybe everybody feels like that and it's just artists that I'm talking to. Yeah. But that sense of um, observing the world from the outside in and not quite feeling like you're a part of it. But then the advantage of that is that you do have that eye that sees things um, potentially from a clearer perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, that, that, there's, there's certainly a point there. But, I mean, I always think that, for me, belonging is, a, is family. Mm, definitely, um, yeah. And that's, I think, very defining, really. Yeah. yeah. People often say, oh, you know, why don't you live in Melbourne or would you live in, you know, where, where else would you live? Well, you know, if my family lived in Timbuktu, that's where I'd be living. Yeah. That's, and it is tricky because, you it's know. It's not just the place for me. No, I think it's definitely not place mm. for me. Um, but then there are some places that will come back in my dreams and I mm. can, I feel them in a visceral sense, a kind of a yearning for a place that, that wasn't quite, there wasn't quite closure there. <laughs> but the other thing I think moving around did for me that has been really helpful for my writing is it's really um, compartmentalised parts of my childhood. And so often a childhood is a great big desert for people when mm. they try to go back into their memories. But I can think, oh, six, that's when I lived in England or 12, that's when I was in Hong Kong. And so because it's a very defined period of time means those memories are really accessible and quite distinctive yeah Mm. i think you remember um trauma and i don't mean that in in the sense of trauma i'm hearing you i know what what i mean yeah (laughs) because i remember um we went to um my parents are lebanese Mm. and immigrated to australia in the 50s but we went back at one point and then came back i was born here but i remember that trip distinctly now i was very very young Mm. and i think you wouldn't have that memory had not that occasion happened absolutely yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it yeah um so tell me so you're a a great reader absolutely growing up um i was lucky that reading was easy for me so i think i was reading before i started school and my mum having been a teacher um you know the highlight for us was getting the puffin catalogue or going to a bookstore that was always a really great occasion and i'm actually really glad i grew up before screens i have to say my parents were even quite anti-television so books and making books were the way that we entertained ourselves and i feel for parents of children nowadays and including my younger son is still 16 so i still grapple with him and his smartphone and computer access but i do worry about that 
ability to let children just become bored because I think yeah. once they are bored, that's when your real imagination kicks in where you're yes. not scheduling every moment or giving them a screen to keep them busy because it, well, it is... We need to tell parents that more because I think it's so. this daily activity of, you know, before school, after school. You and know. we do it ourselves. Well, I know sometimes I used to sit at a bus stop and daydream. I don't know. Yeah. I pull my phone out. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I think I, I worry about that. And if For people that want to harbour inner creative lives, if you're filling it with content all the time, how do you let that dream space occur? Mm. That's a very good point. <laughs> but it's uh, hard because when kids are bored, they annoy you. So it's mm. obvious that and so you want to give you them want an easy yeah, fix to yeah. give them a screen to shut them up. Yeah. But I guess that's what television used to do too. Sure. So maybe they're getting they're pe- picking up their creative um, senses through through the screen. I mean, it's we can't go back. No, so it's how we manage it. Absolutely. You know, and it? people do really creative things on screens too. I think it is just yeah. I feel really grateful that my parents allowed me to get bored, but also my dad was a really strong advocate of getting us out into nature. Yes. And even though we lived in a lot of really built-up cities like Hong Kong, he would make sure we'd go out to an island and bushwalk or camp. So the two things I'm really grateful for is my mum making sure we, we all had active imaginations and my dad making sure we had this connection to nature. And, and those are two things that I think are vital for our growing children to make sure that they have an empathy for nature because that's our future. If we don't, yeah. the planet is gone. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we've absolutely. wrecked it so much already. But also imagination, the sense of possibility and creativity comes from there as well. Yeah. Okay, so what, tell me when you started taking writing seriously. Oh, it, I think it was just more a case of never stopping. And so... Right. Um, <laughs> Could I say even grade six? I don't know because I've always written. I've always written stories. And I remember I had a wonderful grade six teacher in the school I went to in Hong Kong who would read my stories aloud in class. And he'd oh, never wow. say who it was. Yeah. He'd just say, oh, somebody handed in a story. I thought I'd read it out. And I'd recognise the first line. Obviously, and yeah. I'd slink into my seat and turn yeah. bright red. And I'd be really embarrassed but so proud at the same time. And something about the act of him validating my work by reading it aloud made me think, oh, someone else can see something in this and there's some potential there. So I probably would credit him as to the person that made me think, you know, is a, is a writer a real thing? You know? Yeah. <laughs> back then is we it didn't a have, real occupation? That's right. And, you know, back then we didn't have authors visiting schools in the way we do now. So yeah. it's, it's, it felt like something magical and out there. And also when I came back to Melbourne, we went to very academic girls' school where the goal was to be a doctor or a lawyer and I think my dad really hoped that that would be (laughs) be where I'd end up. Um, And so, you know, writer wasn't something that you found in the university courses even back then too. So it was more just something that I always loved and never dreamed I could make a living from. Yeah. So I pinch myself every day really. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's lovely to love what you do, isn't it? Yeah. I'm the same, I pinch myself every day. It's great, isn't it? I mean, look what I do. I talk to wonderful people like yourself it's fantastic and I would say that is one of the best things about being a writer is that it has allowed me to have the most incredible experiences and meet the most incredible people yeah a few years ago I was in a little school in um the highlands of West Papua that the only way you could access the school was by helicopter now can you imagine having that experience in any other and what were you doing there just doing a residency in this tiny little school of 15 kids oh how fabulous I know and how lucky they Thank you. But yeah. I was thinking, how lucky am I? Yes, yeah, I think you're both lucky. Yeah. Okay, so tell me, what was your first book that was published? So the very first one I had published has a really sweet story behind it called yeah. Speak Chinese Feng Feng. And I'd just come back from studying in China for three years and I could speak Mandarin quite fluently. So I thought before I lose it, I should start tutoring Chinese-Australian kids, help them with their homework. Yeah. And Feng Feng was a young girl who I would help with her homework after school. 
but she would complain to me about her parents wanting her to speak Chinese at home all the time. Right. And I would say, oh, you know, it's probably for a very good reason. They don't want you to lose their language or your culture. But, of course, for kids, you can tell them that to you, black and blue yeah. in the face. And I couldn't find any books around that really reflected her lifestyle. There were Chinese folk tales, but that wasn't her life. Yeah. So, like a lot of writers will say, so I wrote one. Yeah. <laughs> and in the beginning, it was just a handmade book that I made for her just to, so she could see her About life. being Chinese in just Australia. Just called Speak Chinese Feng Feng, about yeah. what it's like to grow up and pretty much be her in yes. China and how it's not such a bad thing to be able to speak another language. And I happened to show it to a librarian friend who said, you should think about getting it published. And she was really the person who made me think about that there might be other people interested in that story as well. And so I approached Scholastic and um, the Omnibus, which is a branch of Scholastic, and they took it on even though it was this scrappy little handmade book and they made it into a proper published book. Was it because that you were representing um, something that children don't see in literature, literature a lot is themselves? Very much. And I think talk, I was... Talk to me about that. Well, I think I was very, very lucky at the time that Omnibus were specifically yeah. looking to broaden their list and they yeah. were one of the first publishers. And even now, people are really desperate to have more diversity in children, in all pub- Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. but particularly in children's because it is so important to see yourself reflected in your work. Absolutely. And even in the character Fung Fung that I wrote, even though I didn't illustrate that, it was really important to me she wasn't blonde-haired and blue-eyed because there's enough of those characters out there. I wanted her to be dark-haired so she could be Hispanic or Chinese or Japanese um, because unfortunately most, still probably I'd say most of the books are sold into fairly middle-class, wealthy homes, and so often the instinct is to reflect the buyer. But I think more and more we're trying to reach other kids that potentially may just be able to access books through schools or libraries, potentially may not have families that speak English or know how to access books for their kids. But those are the kids that need to see themselves reflected more than ever because they're the ones our next generation, yeah. Yeah. So that was published. Yes, yeah, yeah, and won an award, an illustrator's <laughs> award. <laughs> there you go. Which then right. allowed me to go on and work with an incredible range yeah. of Australian authors. Yeah. Um, and I did illustrate books for a long time, picture books. That was And some, not write. I was writing at the same time, but the work that was coming into me was illustrating work, and so right. I didn't ever at that stage feel like I could turn anything down. No, of course. Um, but at the same time, I was writing Aussie Bites and um, small chapter books. I did write two young adult novels during that period of time too. So, Fantastic. Yeah. It's, okay. It's very much um, learning on the job. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So, I mean, you know, 50 books, there's so many books. And so then, really, I mean, Billy B. Brown, was that groundbreaking for you? Absolutely. Changed my life, Cheryl. So tell me about that. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you in a very romantic way. So I was 39, um, mm. the, the main breadwinner for our family and really, really struggling financially and thinking, you know, if I can't start to make a living from what I do, I'm going to have to seriously look at something else. And I was teaching at RMIT at the time and that was very appealing. I do actually really like teaching. But I decided I'd give it one last shot. And I met uh, Hilary Rogers, who was the publisher at Hardy Grant Egmont at the time, and said, look, you know, I think I really need to start to make a living from my writing. She was like, duh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, hello. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that whole romantic idea yeah. of just being able to live off, um, you know, the romanticism of being a writer doesn't actually work. We need no. to pay the bills. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we brainstormed this idea together, and she had been thinking about putting together a series of writers to write a collection of stories about strong female characters. And she said, would you write, like to write for the series? Would you like to write the series? And, of course, me, the opportunist, opportunist said, no, 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 I'll write the series, I'll write the series, give, yeah. give me a go. So she said, okay, we'll go away and um, come up with some storylines and we'll have a look at them and see what we think. And so I came up with six short ideas for stories and they took on four, they loved them. I don't think anybody realised how big they were going to become. And, and did you illustrate them? No, that was another, I think a really good decision is that they did offer for me to illustrate it, but I was very aware they were going to want to publish a lot in quite a short space of time. And I thought, I have to put my energy somewhere. I'm not going to be able to do both. So they enlisted a lovely young woman who is living in New Zealand, but is born in Japan. So her style has a bit of a manga style to it and she yeah. looks very much like the main character, Billy B. Brown. Yeah. Her name is Aki Fukuoka. And she brought it a kind of a contemporary look that I couldn't have done. You know, my yeah. illustration style is quite old-fashioned. And we signed up four books and then they thought they're doing okay. We signed up another two and Hardy Grant had a really great um, marketing campaign behind it, which I was unaware I of. I remember it. Yeah, yeah, they did a really fantastic job. And I just remember about six months after the first books came out, I went in to do a library talk. And usually when you turn up to a library talk, you know, there might be half a dozen kids up the front and the kind librarian gets yes. a few more kids to come and sit up. <laughs> and I right. walked into the library and there were these crowds of kids. And I thought, wow, there must be some something event going on. on here or something. <laughs> and the librarian came rushing up and she said, oh, thank goodness you're here. You know, there's all these kids, we don't know what to do. And I realised they were all for me. And I thought, oh my goodness, something has happened here that mm. I'm completely unaware of. And there must have just been something that it tapped into. I feel like the timing was right, the, the market campaign that Hardy Grant and put into it. Can you tell me, so you were writing all of them? Yes, I wrote all of them. So You weren't meant to write all of them, were no, you? No, I think it was more that Hillary was thinking that either she often... Okay, so to give you a little bit of, of context, the Go-Go series and the back and the Zach Power series, which yes. have done very well for them, they have a lot of different writers. That's right. So she, I think she was thinking maybe she would do the similar thing or um, give me the opportunity to write them all. And so, of course, I wasn't <laughs> going to turn that down. Yeah. Um, and then it just went gangbusters and we went from six books to 10 to 20 and then my son said, well, why doesn't Jack get to tell the story? And so I said, well, should we do Jack's perspective? And so we did 20 Jack books as well. And I think within the space of about three or four years, there were 52 Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack books published. Wow. So it was partly my eagerness to really work hard and to um, give Hardy Grant what they want, but to feel like they were really on board as well. So it can be tricky if you work really, really hard and you don't feel like um, 
you're completely supported by your publisher or you work really hard and your book goes out of print within a few years, but this wasn't happening. It really felt like there was this fantastic energy going on. Well, it's because people were reading it. Yeah. Kids were reading it. It was working, yeah. 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 So, it working. And it means that I can now write full-time. Yeah, wow. So you <laughs> so, didn't give it up. And I didn't give it up. Yeah. yeah. I was so close. Yeah. yeah. It's a real Cinderella story. Yeah. So. <laughs> we had um, Morris Gleisman in the other day um, and he's a great talker like yourself. Um, but one of the things that has always struck me about writing kids' books is that how that adult brain stays in that space for a long time. Because often when you watch fiction writers, they're writing about what they know. So you'll see a fiction writer at 22 and then a fiction writer at 42 and it's a completely different perspective, isn't it? Mm. So how do you stay in that space? I think it is the key to writing for children. I think the re- the re- children's writers that I think really connect with kids are the ones that don't write from the outside in. So right. they're not writing as if they can imagine what children are like or what children be into or what children are thinking. They actually remember what it's like to be a child. They remember how humiliating it would have been to stand up in assembly and, and um, say, you know, mess up what you were supposed to say or not being invited to a birthday party. You know, later as an adult, you can trivialise that and you can say, yeah. that's not a big deal. But as a child, that is your whole world. And for children, every experience is a first experience. So they live in this constant state of awe. And so I think it is this thing about when people travel... They're always taking photographs, writing home because they're seeing the city for the first time and it seems magical. That's what it's like to be a child. They're walking through their life as if they're seeing it for the very first time and in this constant state of awe. So it's like doing two things. It's like being open and alive to the world that you live in every single day but also really being able to tap into that emotional um, memory of childhood. So not just the things you did on a physical realm, but how you felt about it. And that's always where I begin. And that's where I think Morris Gleitzman writes beautifully yeah, too. He remembers yeah. what it's like to be a boy. Yeah. Hmm. That's a really, that's a very good explanation of how it all works. And we're all infantilized as well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you're all well, children people will think that, you know, often... Yeah. Um, often, so I have a little radio program in um, Melbourne and I specifically bring writers children's writers in because I think people often forget that even though we love the child mind and we're interested in the child mind we also read adult books and we also talk to adults and we also think very deeply about our craft I think often you'll see at festivals that children's writers are expected to entertain kids but we're very often are very very not very often asked to really explain our craft to other adults which is why this is such a great opportunity thank you because um Every children's author I know really thinks deeply about what they do. And they, oh, yeah. They bring... I have definitely noticed that with yeah. the children's authors I've yeah. spoken to. I mean, you know, it's a profession. It's a craft. Absolutely. They really they really understand it. It's more like a genre. It's like not Without seeing... Without a doubt. It's like not seeing a fantasy writer as equivalent yeah. to, you know, a literary writer. You just do it. You're writing what you write well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I definitely see that. What's the age group? Do you prefer... Talk to me about the age group of your books and what age group you like the most to write to? I think probably middle grade is the easiest. I think um, the other thing that uh, is quite deceptive about the Billy books is the hardest thing about them is that you have to have a really complex storyline and emotional line and character narrative arc with 1,200 words and very, very limited vocabulary. So when I was in the middle of writing those, I remember there was a time I used to think, oh, people will think I can't speak in words of more than two syllables. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but that was the challenge. It was to take really complex ideas and whittle them down to a really accessible, almost reader vocabulary. And I, my son was in grade two at the time and I was a reading help 
mum in the classroom. Yes. So I was very much immersed in that kind of reader's language. So the key for me was to use that language but to create story out of it rather than just words. Yeah. So that was a that's actually quite challenging. And oh, so, definitely. <laughs> because it's so constrained. Whereas I feel like just the next level up, the middle grade, it's a beautiful area to write for because kids are still full of awe and imagination and possibility, uh, but you can expand the language, you can play around with imagery a little bit more um, and you don't have to go into that whole angsty domain of young adult writing, which yes. is all a bit scary because then you have to go and talk to teenagers and they're yeah. scary. <laughs> That's right. It's like a wall of year nines when you turn yeah. up to a high school. Um, I often think picture books are so formative on so many levels. I mean, you know, they're, they're so clever. I mean, they're short stories, you know, with the sparsest words, but the biggest stories. And they have always sat with me and I've, I find myself very drawn to them to go back and read them. I think they're almost like small films, would you say, in yeah. a sense that because it's probably the other than filmmaking, it would be the only medium that I can think of that requires visual storytelling alongside oral storytelling and usually a picture book is meant to be read aloud so the child is experiencing it mm. almost in the way that you would watch a film they're they're looking at the visuals and they're having the story narrated to them by another person so it's completely different again even to writing for children who are reading books on their own because when you're reading when you're writing a book for a child that's going to read it on their own has to be the vocabulary they can access mm. uh, whereas a picture book you have an adult with them that can explain more complex themes or complex vocabulary and it's a shared experience so you really can play around with the language and the imagery much, much more. Mm. I think that that's a really great description of mm. them. Mm. Yeah, and that's why they sit with you forever. And adults as well as children as much as some may not admit that because yeah. they're beautiful and some of our best artists are making yeah. uh, the illustrations for picture books. I mean, Sean Tan and Ansford Villas mm. are renowned across the world for their mm. art. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Well, Sally Rippon, I can't thank you enough. It's a total pleasure. It's so lovely to be able to talk about my work at this depth. So thank you. Well, congratulations on your success. Honestly, it's fabulous. It's such a great story. Keep the great work up. Thanks so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.